Welcome to Unfurling, a podcast that explores the power of the natural world to inform and inspire. And today we are going to be focusing on language. And we did a trial run just a second ago with us speaking, <laughs> introducing ourselves uh, in different languages, and it sounded really lame. <laughs> so, <laughs> so really, really bad. So we've decided to take that out. But yeah, something that struck us, you know, in between our recordings, we will kind of text each other some ideas for topics. And this one we, we kind of agreed on very quickly. And yet when we got to the call before the, the recording just now, we're like, oh, wow, we've, we've chosen yet again another huge topic. Mm. Um, but one which we hope will, will prompt some interesting thoughts in you. And we'd love to, to hear what does come up. Language feels just it felt really timely at the moment. Mm. And we'll come on to, I guess, what we mean by language later in the episode and how it links to communication more broadly and so on. But I guess we're really conscious that that language and words in particular as as humans right now can you know really make or break relationships they can foster growth and and um, wonderful new things or they can damage and 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 undermine things that are happening so it felt really timely we have a loose structure for how we might think about this and it really involves kind of thinking about the human world and the way that we use language in relationships and in dialects and, and you know poetry and things like that. Um, then we also want to think about the natural world and uh, communication within species, between species. And then thirdly, kind of thinking about the connections between that human world and that natural world um, and how language and communication can help us to conserve the environment and to support our mental health it's a two-way thing all of that um is i guess with the kind of disclaimer that we know that the human world and the natural world are not separate things humans are part of the natural world um but for the purpose of this podcast we wanted to slightly draw apart i guess communication as it applies to and within humans so thinking of language and then with the kind of non-human ways of communicating in the natural world so that's the kind of starting point mm. And yeah, I'm sure we'll be bringing in questions about, you know, whether language is purely human, you know, do other animals have language or is it separate? Is it communication? And, and what is language? Does it always have to be verbal? Can it be nonverbal? Um, my hunch is that there's a kind of spectrum, you know, it's not an either or here and that there's a kind of um, increasing complexity in this. Um, and I'm curious about, I guess the perspectives we take on this as to whether, for example, language is purely human, you know, and therefore us separates us, what implications that has on how we treat animals and how we treat the natural world. So it's not going to be straightforward, but hopefully we'll we'll find our way through. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this, Elizabeth. Mm, me too. It feels time to, to get the Cambridge Dictionary out. Um, and according to it, Language is a system of communication consisting of sounds, words, and grammar, or the system of communication used by people in a particular country or type of work. And then further on down, there's a kind of expansion of that. So again, it's repeating the idea of speaking and writing. There's also signs that's brought in. So making signs in a way that can be understood 
or any of the different systems of communication used in particular regions as well. So it's expanded from country. And even further down, they talk about computer programming and how a language in that setting is a system of writing instructions for computers. So it feels like there's a bit of an evolution, even within a few paragraphs of the dictionary about what language is and language is always evolving. And it felt appropriate to think about, well, what does the word language, you know, where does it come from? And it comes from Latin, uh, meaning speech, words, oratory, a tribe, people, nation. So can go from as simple as a word or, or a string of words through to a whole nation, which again kind of underlines the enormity of this topic. Um, and also simply, um, as well from Latin, can mean tongue. I love a couple of things that you said there. Um, just the idea that that language is always evolving. I think mm. that's I find that interesting, which it also kind of implies that language is something that's generated and we you know we have an we are able therefore to create and to generate new words and new meanings um which makes me think of the word poetry actually and this is something we'll come on to later but the word poetry comes from um the root of it is the word poesis which i think means to to create to make um and i love the idea that poetry is a is a meaning making a word making um process and I, I'm kind of curious the connection between poetry and, and words and language and, and communication. So we'll come to that. Mm-hmm. Also, you touched on um, languages as it relates to tribe um, and people. And I think, yeah, that's that's huge. What came up for me there was um, a word I scribbled down. I don't actually know how you pronounce it, but it's spelled pepeha, P-E-P-E-H-A. And it's the Maori word. And as I understand it, it's a way of introducing yourself that tells people rather than just your name, it, it shares your kind of connections to place and people that are important to you. So it might be you have a nearby mountain or forest or river or community. And this kind of builds a picture of who you are and tells people who you are in relation to people and place. So as we think about words related to, to groups of people and communities, I think it's interesting to sort of note how people and place can shape language and vice versa how does language shape people and place there's nuance here and and the kind of relationship between language and words and also identity I think that's really interesting Mm. yeah so lots of paths we could go down here and what you've said Elizabeth a couple of things pop into my head then so um firstly going back to the idea of poetry you mentioned um There's a quote here from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson from 1844, um, saying that language is fossil poetry. As the limestones of the continent consists of infinite masses of shells, of animalcules, so language is made up of images or tropes, which now in their secondary use have long ceased to remind us of their poetic origin. Mm. And yeah, there's something for me about... um, Something about control that comes with language, you know, in a way it can be used to define things and um, make them um, more easy to to hold on to or capture. Um, And yet, where has all this come from? Um, And that kind of how do we connect with the natural world in ways that sometimes we can't express it with language? 
um, equally, uh, there's a book called uh, Landmarks by Robert McFarlane. And in it, he talks about uh, a botanist called Oliver Rackham. Mm. In 1986, his book, The History of the Countryside. And he describes four ways in which landscape is lost through the loss of beauty, the loss of freedom, the loss of wildlife and vegetation, and the loss of meaning. And so there's something here about, yeah, the importance of of language as a kind of almost like a conduit to meaning that we find in our world, whether that's in our day-to-day life or in the the wider uh, natural world. And What's interesting is, um, again, in in the same book, um, Landmarks by Robert McFarlane, he talks about um, back in 2007, uh, looking at the new edition of the Oxford Junior Dictionary, that a number of entries had been deleted that were words concerning nature. And I'll just read them out. There's acorn, adder, ash, beech, bluebell, buttercup, Catkin, conquer, cowslip, signet, dandelion, fern, hazel, heather, heron, ivy, kingfisher, lark, mistletoe, nectar, newt, otter, pasture, and willow. And that just astounded me. Mm. (laughs) I was like, how are those words not in the dictionary still? It's not like they've gone extinct. You know, mm. um, and I'll, I'll bring up a study in, in a moment um, about you know how those words, how nature words are being used going forward. Um, but it, it kind of quite shocked me reading that mm. that these are no longer featuring in the Oxford Junior Dictionary. Yeah, and going back to the idea that language can be made and it evolves. That I guess if you sort of extrapolate that thought, if those words in, are no longer being used enough. To, to, to warrant them being in a dictionary, mm. where, where is that going? Does that mean actually they're going to fall out of our language? Um, mm. They're just not, not useful words, and I think that's terrifying. So speaking of Robert McFarlane and the words that you've just spoken about, I, this is where I wish a podcast could be visual because I'm holding in my hands a really gorgeous, mm. big, beautiful book called The Lost Words, and it's by Robert McFarlane and Jackie Morris, who's an artist. And they took that list of words that you've just read out, Kat, and they've made it into what they called a spell book. And for each Mm. of those words, Robert McFarlane wrote a short or sometimes slightly longer poem about that word. And Jackie Morris painted all these gorgeous, gorgeous pictures of the words. So there's um, larks and uh, all sorts of things in here. And I just want to um, read out a couple of lines from the introduction of that book and then a very short poem from the book as well. So in the, at the beginning of the book, Robert uh, McFarlane and Jackie Morris, they sit, he says, once upon a time, words began to vanish from the language of children. They disappeared so quietly that at first, almost no one noticed, fading away like water on stone. Mm. The words were those that children used to name the natural world around them. And then he writes down a few of the words that you've just um, read out. Um, All of them gone. The words are becoming lost, no longer vivid in children's voices, no longer alive in their stories. Mm. And then I'm just going to turn to a very short four line poem 
about the word fern because it feels appropriate to unfurling. <laughs> um, and this is a word that's not in the dictionary, that's terrifying. So the short poem for fern goes like this. Fern's first form is furled, each frond fast as a fiddlehead. Reach, roll and unfold follows, fern flares. Now fern is fully fanned. And it's short and sweet. And there's some other really lovely, quite different poems in here. And I really, if you haven't got the book, it's a real, um, I really encourage you to to consider buying it. It's just beautiful, particularly if you have children. I think it's just a real, like they've, like the authors have said, it's a real sort of spell book and magic book for the power of these words and, and what they represent. Yeah, you know, linking back to the idea of poetry too, and it, it, you know, words being a generative thing. For me, I love that connection between the natural world and the imaginative, written, spoken, poetic, you know, fictional world that we can create. For me, the natural world helps inform my imagination, and, and similarly, my imagination helps me see the natural world in perhaps a different way. I'm just really interested in that connection between language and the natural world. Yeah, do you want to pick up on the study you um, mentioned earlier, Kat? Yeah, it's. Um, I love that poem, by the way. Mm. It was. Um, it made me feel quite sad, actually. I was. Um, mm. I was speaking uh, to a friend yesterday, actually, um, who's a generation older than me, and she was talking about how she, as a child, would just go off you know, with a friend into the, you know, they lived in the countryside and they would just go off for the day and play in the countryside. Mm. And and it just saddens me that this kind of the freedom, you know, is getting curtailed with kids, you know, these, the words are disappearing. And yeah, there's a study, um, let me just get it up, which is an academic study of evidence from over 25 years, um, has highlighted a declining trend of Britain's associated words like stream, web and cloud with nature. Mm. So for example, Today, just 1% of uses of the word tweet relates to birds. Hmm. And obviously the rest is is Twitter now. Um, Similarly, 7% of the word web now refers to spiders, whereas, um, you know, in the 1990s, it was uh, 71%. And it's it's other words like stream, branch, net, fibre, field, and cloud. Hmm. And it almost feels like, you know, as the world has become more technology, technological, it's they've always been like taking these words that are natural, you know, about the natural world and reinventing them for what's interestingly quite a different world, that of technology. You know, and we think about Apple, you know, mm. as a really basic example, but now, you know, is associated with a hugely um, successful company. Mm. Um, and like BlackBerry as well. Yeah. And a lot of like private equity firms, you know, will use um, nature um, words in their names. Mm. And, and there's something about, you know, what's drawing us to do that, you know, because clearly people are liking these words. Mm. <laughs> um, and yet what is the impact of doing that and taking away the, the original association mm. or, or certainly lessening it? Mm. Yeah. And, and like uh, you referenced at the beginning, you know, the, the human world and the natural world, they are the same thing. Humans are part of the natural world. And yet the more that we kind of create or sort of, you know, steal language almost from the natural world and, and put it into our own meaning, the more we kind of 
are creating that separation between the human world and the natural world. And I know that during lockdown, during the pandemic, a lot of people spoke about reconnecting with the natural world and going on, going for more walks or whatever it might be um, that's possible where, where they are. So there is a sense that though humans are part of the natural world, there is we can easily feel disconnect from it. You know, whether that's physically or yeah, in our imaginations and and understanding through the words we choose or, or don't choose. Yeah, and thinking of those connections or it's you know separation of the human and natural world makes me think too of terms that we increasingly see when we think of you know climate change and and you know conversations on biodiversity. So the term natural natural resource or natural capital to me this kind of you know, I, I sort of take the point that it's about looking at the natural world as a resource. And if we if we squander it, we can't get it back. And yet it also really others the natural world and it others us. It, I think it drives a wedge actually between humans and the natural world. I think that words and terms and ideas kind of shape our perception of the, the problems and the challenges we have. But they can also help us think of solutions and and find new ways to think about this stuff. So I guess I question terms like natural resource. Is that really helpful for us imagining solutions and imagining what's possible when we think of conserving the natural world and conserving our own, um, you know, mental health and, and well-being and so on? How do these terms help us? So then I guess I turn to, you know, what's possible with language and words. And I think of stories I think of poetry we've touched on that I think of art these are all kinds of communication and I think that um, the right words the right stories can help us reimagine ourselves help us reimagine the natural world and probably help us connect to the natural world as well you know I know some of my favorite poems and books just you know they can really bring up emotions in me and and real love for the natural world and I haven't even stepped outside I've just seen it in a new way through language and story and and the power of words so I think there's a real possibility here as well um, that we can choose to to look into yeah it's kind of bringing some of the soul back into this you know when you talk about natural resources it does feel very it's kind of keeping things at an arm's distance and and Mm always useful to us whereas yeah the, in the in Robert McFarlane's landmark book there's a a beautiful paragraph he's, he's talked about um language in uh, Lewis in Scotland um and amongst the Apache in Arizona and he says language is used not only to navigate but also to charm the land words act as a compass place speech serves literally to encha- enchant the land to sing it back into being and to sing one's being back into it. Mm. And there is, there's something about um, just really embracing words and how they can help us connect to, to ourselves, to the land, but also to others. And it, it reminds me actually, um, when I was, I was uh, introduced to my husband through some mutual friends and uh, we started emailing. And I think in one of his first emails, he was saying it was a Dreek day. And I was like, what is that word? (laughs) I was like, sounds vaguely familiar, but I have no idea what it is. So I'm quite a geek. And so I was was like, oh, I must find out what that is. And dreek is a Scottish word, um, meaning long drawn out, protracted, hence tedious, wearisome, damp, wet, grey weather. (laughs) 
in November 2019, was named the most popular Scots word by Scottish Book Trust. And even though perhaps it's not the most enthralling word to put in an email <laughs> um, as you're you know, starting to date someone, <laughs> it was something that connected me with him because you know, we both share Scottish heritage. There was something that immediately intrigued me about him and perhaps gave me a sense of coming home, even though obviously I grew up in England, but that Scottish side of me was awakened. So mm. yeah, I really feel like that was an example for me personally of of that kind of soul being uh, invigorated mm. by language and language actually about the natural world. Yeah, I, I'm often struck by words and language and, and you know, words that are lost and words that are rediscovered, which picks up on some of what we've talked about. It also makes me think of um, you know, where I live, Devon. I mean, I've got quite interested actually in the real ancient history of Devon and kind of how it used to be with Cornwall, a Celtic um kind of part of our land and some some old English words and and so on and just the story of those words anyway there are some wonderful local Devon dialect words that some of them are just quite sweet and funny and some of them are just really interesting like the word dimpsy means twilight mm. so that kind of bit at the mm. end of the day um so mm. it's getting a bit dimpsy is you know it's kind of that end of the day um though I, I came across something recently a local uh, man had had gone on a mission to rediscover lots of lost Devon words that are sort of falling out of use and there's so many funny ones in there like um the mouth is called a tatty trap <laughs> which is quite sweet <laughs> various other words and it's just it's fascinating like what do those words mean for people when they were used more kind of commonly and what do we lose when we lose dialects and lose words do we do we have a different understanding of our place and, and the natural world? And there are lots of examples all, all around the world of groups of people that have very specific and unique words for all kinds of things. And going back to the idea that you spoke about of, of words being a compass, I think words and language can be real place finders and help us to know a place in, in a in an interesting way. So going back to our last episode on place, you know, I think language and place can be really connected. Mm. And I really believe that when we know and love a place, we want to protect it. And that, you know, when we ripple that out around the world, that could solve so many of our world, uh, of our world's challenges, you know, climate change and biodiversity loss and, and so on. So the kind of the role of language and words in understanding, loving, protecting, caring for a particular place um, if we scale that up around the world, language has an incredible power to reimagine, to restory, to rethink, to to reshape and offer a new vision of what's possible. And thinking of the power of language and words to um, create and the way that they evolve, it makes me think of uh, a couple of lines from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. And he says, for last year's words belong to last year's language and next year's words await another voice. And it makes me think of, you know, the next generation and how are words going to change? And if words are dropping out of the dictionary, how might they come back in? What new words are we creating? Um, so, yeah, it speaks to the sort of generative power of words, I think. I love that. Yeah, the evolution. Mm. More than just, you know, sort of nice dialect and nice poetry. It, there's serious power in words mm. and we have to be mindful of that. You know, at the moment in the world, whether it's... Um, you know, the context of elections or um, 
Brexit here in the UK or, you know, generally the pandemic and the exhaustion everyone's feeling. I've become really conscious through some of my own work, just the power of language, particularly when people are exhausted or frustrated or fearful. Mm -hmm. Language can change and it can damage and it can harm relationships. Yeah, and thinking about the power of words and language to um, sort of make or break and about how a single word can you know, make someone feel really high or really low. Um, I just wanted to read a tiny piece of a poem by Emily Dickinson. And the poem's called There is a Word. And it's just the beginning of the poem and it goes like this. There is a word which bears a sword, can pierce an armed man. And the poem goes on, but it's just this idea of uh, the power of a word to to, to mm. pierce someone like that and to to kind of yeah. harm. There's incredible power in words, you know, for destruction, but also for creation and generation and regeneration. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, kind of nonviolent communication, mm. you know, and, and different ways of of being and speaking. Um, and comes back to listening, which was an earlier episode as well that we we looked at mm. yeah and that makes me think um of the animal world and we could again spend a whole episode you know talking through great examples of animal language is it language is it communication how are we defining this um there's so much out there um one that particularly caught my attention when I was doing some research before uh, the podcast uh, was about prairie dogs. Um, there's a, a great New York Times article, which I'll, I'll put in the, in the footnotes, which uh, goes into more detail. And this article is about uh, an emeritus professor of biology at Northern Arizona University called Slobod Chikoff. Um, who's basically been analysing the sounds of prairie dogs for more than 30 years. And essentially prairie dogs have underground tunnels that they live in, but when they need food, they obviously have to go to the top of the tunnels and that's obviously quite an exposed space for them in terms of predators. And so what um, he's been studying is looking at um, their vocabulary essentially for danger. And what he's found um, is that they can identify the type of predator. They can identify the size, shape, colour and speed. Um, Even the structural elements of the calls can be used in novel ways to describe something they've never seen before. Um, I'll let you read the article because it goes into the science behind it. But what struck me was, you know, I've not really heard of prairie dogs when I think of communication. You know, I think of elephants, I think of dolphins, you know, there are kind of um, dogs even, you know, there are kind of the more classic ones that come to mind. There hasn't been as much funding in this area. And I think what's interesting is that actually prairie dogs aren't necessarily viewed in a positive light. Sometimes they're seen as pests. So before 1800, there are as many as five billion prairie dogs living across the Great Plains in America, which spanned 100 million acres. Um, And today, by some estimates, the five prairie dog species inhabit as little as one to two million acres total. So one or two percent of what they used to. And it seems that they've declined in part because of mass sanctioned slaughter, not because of their meat or fur, but simply to eliminate them as a pest. Um, Ranchers long believing that they can't um, exist well alongside cattle, even though it seems that such competition is actually generally negligible. There's something, I guess this, this example brings up in me um, 
like why isn't there the funding what or, or not so easily you know if, if something's seen as a pest you know are we not so interested in it there's also been some outcry against the research saying that it's not true language. Um, again, read the article, you can find out more. And, and for me, I, I don't know the answer. And I, will we ever know the answer as to what cre- you know, other animals, are they speaking in a language or is it communication? What is the difference? Um, but for me, it brings up that question of us as humans, like what makes us so special? And is language one of those things? Does it reflect the fact we have a soul, if you believe in soul, um, whereas animals don't? There's something about a hierarchy it can bring up. That's, I think that's really interesting. And that point, the question that you ask, Kat, about kind of the different, you know, what makes human language different? And are we the only species that have a language or do we see it as kind of communication more broadly, like we do maybe with other species? It makes me think about another thing that slightly differentiates humans from other species and that is the fact that we can write our language down um the, mm. the written word was a huge turning point in i guess the evolution of humans as a species um we have records of our past we're able to to track changes over quite a long time and obviously the invention of the printing press and mass mass distribution of the word and written language mm. was another step again but i can't think of any other species that you know records things in the same way that we do so I don't really have a point other than it's it's just interesting, like the the power and the learning we have from writing things down and recording things. Um, mm. So with other species, whether it's animals, um, plants even, you know, I guess we rely on tracking that communication in the moment and studying it in real time. I mean, we, ha- we have fossil records. That's one way of recording mm. how things have changed, I suppose. But that's quite different to intentionally writing down mm language mm. makes me think too you speaking about other species a few a couple that come up for me one and I've touched on it before is trees and forests and the work of Suzanne Simard looking at underground communication between trees using fungal networks mm. this research is sort of there's a nice way of referring to it as trees talking to each other now the trees aren't talking to each other they're like humans talk to each other but they are certainly uh, exchanging resource and exchanging signals and messages. Is that a kind of language? Would we mm-hmm. just say that's communication? I don't know. I guess that it, it's an interesting, but they're certainly communicating. You know, they're sending warning signals to other trees to say that there are certain pathogens around and to to put out some protective um, measures to to you know to look after themselves. Or they're sharing carbon and nutrients and uh, and other things underground. So there is exchange and communication happening there it also makes me think of a couple of other things one is the octopus so um Mm. our friend mark who's part of our lovely unfurling community um on facebook the unfurling podcast community which you can look in the um, footnotes of this and if you want to be part of that community you can just join it but anyway he um recommended a documentary on netflix called my octopus teacher Um, and I watched this last night and um, it's just over an hour and it was fascinating this man who'd had some um, challenges just started going swimming every day in South Africa in the ocean um, and encountered this octopus and over the course of about a year built this what looked like a relationship with this octopus they were kind of connecting and um you know, not speaking a language, but certainly communicating in a way, in the way that this octopus came to trust 
the guy sort of you know sit on him and sit on his hand and it was just beautiful this I think there's sort of work been done looking at how, how octopuses so the plural of octopus octopuses to know um octopi, octopi. I think octopi. let's go with that octopi um how they communicate and how they learn they're really intelligent so I think you know they use color and shapes and 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 so on to to communicate different things like threat or danger or other things so that yeah that was just really interesting and also I think of birds as well and um bird song I'm not very good at identifying many birds by their song I can identify some but just the complexity of some bird calls you know you mm. can sit there and listen to one bird go through a whole repertoire of language it seems and I can't understand a word of it but I can appreciate its beauty and I think that's just fascinating you know there's there's beauty in their communication even though we we're not privy to what they're saying no it just it, it, actually I, I spoke to my mum before we did this recording and um, was asking her about her experience and, and that of my dad's um, when they worked at Slimbridge and communicating with birds you know as humans mm. um because there's a, a picture with some of my dad's obituaries in, in newspapers of him, what looks like talking to a swan. Hmm. And uh, I was asking mum, like, what's the story behind that? And she said, actually, that the swan had just been released and it kind of turned around. It's quite a young swan and it was quite an, an aggressive yeah, approach towards my dad and was waving its wings in aggression. And, and basically my dad kind of uh, knelt down and kind of met met the swan as it were mm. and somehow there was this communication between the two of them mm. um equally you know he learned how to kind of imitate greetings um for example with a spur wing goose so it's interesting that kind of idea of not just how animals and you know plants and uh, birds communicate between themselves but also with us mm. yeah so that interspecies communication and there we might not always know what each other's saying I guess that sort of touches on non-verbal communication and and the the ability of sensing something even though there might not be their words or same language to go with that so picking up on these other cues which makes me think of things I've read about for example the the Bushmen Southern Africa mm. um, who are just expert trackers and they can see and read signals and cues and signs in the natural world that we'd never be able to see um, with our kind of western eyes um there's a lovely book i've got which i'll reference in the notes called wild signs and star paths by mm. tristan gooley and he sort of talks through all these different clues and signals and he, he talks about unlocking our sixth sense through reading some you know um through you know yeah bird song but also what the river's doing and what rocks are doing and what grasses are doing it's just beautiful and made me think of the bushmen and their ability to maybe not well, probably communicate with, but certainly understand what the natural world is saying through looking at it slightly differently. So I think there's a lot of lessons out there about communication within and between species that isn't reliant on words and, and language as we would know it, but it certainly is a kind of communication. So, yeah, I mean, this this is some, a topic I think we could spend hours and hours talking about and thinking about um but I'm conscious yeah we want to be fair to our listeners mm. so let's draw it you know to a close and think about you know what might be helpful for for us and for our listeners to think about um you know taking taking away some of our thinking and learnings from this episode um and for me we talked just now about you know communication 
or language within a species and between species. And I guess, as I think of humans, um, and obviously we can be very diverse in nature, but if we think about humans as, as a species, you know, what comes up for me is being really thoughtful about how we communicate. So how we use our words, what words we use, you know, the tone that we use, because, yeah, it does feel... I don't know, I've certainly been quite exhausted the last few weeks. Mm. Um, I think just within the context of all that's going on in the world. And it feels like now is a time for real care, um, you know, for oneself, you know, and, and, you know, doing the rest that we all need to do, but, but also the care with which we treat other people. For me, at a very basic level, it's, you know, how are we speaking to people? Um, and equally, how are we listening to them? And so, I guess it's just becoming conscious of what words are we using? Um, are they words that um, really help us uh, connect with others? Are they words that exclude others? Um, you know, sometimes if I'm in training with people that are more um, advanced than me in certain topics, I can feel excluded because I don't know the vocabulary. Um, and yet I can learn it. So there's, it's kind of, I guess, being thoughtful about how do we bring people in? Um, and also how using words for hope and, you know, inspiration. So, mm. yeah, that's something I, I guess I'm wanting to be quite thoughtful about is what words am I using and how am I using them? Mm. That feels especially relevant. And, and the idea of being thoughtful with our words and not excluding for me in my work at the moment in kind of local politics, but also international development and other things I do, I, I really see how that plays out, you know, the, the the power of language and tone and all these other things to bring people together or to exclude and divide. Um, so I think that feels especially important. And really, as we are exhausted collectively, I think from a pandemic or elections or Brexit and many other things that, that um, people are going through, it's, I think, being extra mindful of the power of language to to bring together or divide in the same way that, that I think language can bring us closer together or divide us as a species. I think it can also possibly do the same between uh, humans and sort of non-human natural world. Um, I think, you know, we touched on storytelling and poetry. I think that these things can give us the new lens onto the natural world. So I, I guess I'd encourage our listeners to think about you know, storytelling and, 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 and imagination, art, poetry, whatever kind of floats your boat, how, how could we maybe explore new sides to this that we might not have before? You know, how can these tools, how can language and story and, and so on be a tool for reconnecting with the natural world? Mm -hmm. And then, therefore, as a tool to conserving it and protecting it and understanding it, yeah, and on a very kind of simple level, that, that reminds me of um, a video that the National Trust has produced um, accompanying a study they've done, which is basically showing seven to 10 year olds who are losing nature meanings in their language. And then the joy that they have when they reconnect with those mm. nature meanings of words. Mm. So um, we'll put those in the notes as well. But yeah, just just kind of how to how to connect again mm. yeah you, you know even down to are there particular words that just excite you and that you love you know maybe using mm. the lost words book that we talked about earlier are there words in that that you could perhaps print out the poem that Robert McFarlane and Jackie Morris has put in and put up a picture too of whether it's a fern or an acorn or something and let's just mm. use that as a kind of starting point for thinking mm. of language but also as a, a gateway into the natural world 
yeah, I think that could be a fun thing to play around with, or, or if not that book, you know, other other poems and and so on. Yeah, brilliant. Well, I mean, there's lots more we could have spoken about here, um, <laughs> but we've had to sort of yeah, we'll bring it to a close now. There is we do have our unfurling. Uh, Facebook group for those who want to go a bit deeper or share resources or ideas um, and explore these topics further you're very welcome there just search for unfurling podcast on Facebook but for now I think we'll um, bring all these words and all this language to a close (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, hopefully these words maybe have just added some value somewhere or perhaps generated something somewhere just really trusting in the words and our and our use of an engagement with words to do that. Thinking about how words can uh, connect us, can you know really um, build relationships. And Audrey Hepburn, who I, I loved, um, says this. She says, "For beautiful eyes, look for the good in others. For beautiful lips, speak only words of kindness. And for poise, walk with the knowledge that you are never alone." Hmm. Yeah. That's really uplifting. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, thank you for listening, everyone. Yes. Um, it's been a real pleasure. We have fun here. This is our ninth recording, and um, we're going to do something a little bit different for our tenth recording, but we will share details of that next time. So we look forward to seeing you all next time. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for listening to Unfurling, a podcast that explores the power of the natural world to inform and inspire. 